Let's pray. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by faith as we uh, consider this your word. We ask in his name, amen. You know, for those of you who are newer to our congregation, I've been to Uganda three times in my life. I went a couple of years back, as most of you know. But prior to that, uh, I went in 1990 and then again in 1991. That means that I took my first trip 28 years ago. I was 22 years old when I first went to Uganda. And I had been a Christian just over three years. During my first trip to Uganda, God taught me how to pray. Uh, you've heard the story before. Uh, you've probably heard it several times over the years. During my second trip to Uganda, God taught me that He, not me, but He, uh, is in control of my life. And you've probably heard this story many times over the years as well. But for the purposes of this uh, morning sermon, I think it bears repeating. I got food poisoning the second day that I was in the country. And I lost 17 pounds in two weeks. While I was suffering with food poisoning, uh, one of the other seasoned pastors uh, I wasn't a seasoned pastor, but one of the seasoned pastors contracted malaria. My food poisoning was bad, but it wasn't as bad as malaria. So Dr. Cravendam pressed me into service in preaching, even though I had probably only preached at that point three times uh, in my entire life prior to the, the previous year uh, that I had been. And the, the year previous, several of the pastors had gotten malaria, and I was pressed into preaching uh, that time as well. But this second year, I was a little more prepared to preach, uh, but I wasn't prepared to preach with severe food poisoning. And with this other pastor being down for the count, I was expected to preach three times a day for a week. And uh, the night before I was supposed to preach that first time, I went to bed early because I thought, I need my rest. But there are no window, there's no glass in the window panes uh, in Uganda, at least back in 1991. And a group of Ugandans had gathered outside my window and were talking late into the night, and I couldn't go to sleep. And then there are these really strange-sounding birds in Uganda. There's something like our sandhill cranes. They're cranes as well, but their, their noise is something like I've, I've never heard before in my life. And they typically squawk all night. Finally, I began to fall asleep around 5 a.m. And that was the time that the Muslims start... Um, uh, offering their prayers over loudspeakers from the, the tall minarets that can be he heard all over town. And uh, I had to get out of bed at 7 a.m. and go to the prayer meeting, have breakfast, and then go preach. As I was rolling out of bed that morning, 
I was angry. I had come halfway around the world to to serve the Lord. God had allowed me to get very sick. I felt awful. I had had no sleep. I was supposed to preach for three hours that day. I believed at that time in the sovereignty of God as I continue to believe that today. So I knew that God was ultimately the one who was responsible for my sickness and my lack of sleep. If He had so willed that I have a good night's sleep, if He had so willed, I wouldn't have even gotten sick. And so I was mad, and I was directing my anger at God. Now, how do you go and preach for three hours from God's Word if you're mad at Him? And so I had a bit of of a dilemma. Without going into details, uh, I've told the details in, in different contexts. Um, it's actually probably the most interesting part of the story that I'm leaving out. But I ended up repenting. And that day became one of the most happy and fascinating days of my life. Although it ranks distantly second to my marriage and to the day of all my children's birth. But um, through it all, I learned a very practical lesson about trusting God in the good times and in the difficult times. I can testify that although my faith is far from perfect, I have learned the importance of trusting in God in the good times and the difficult times. I live a more joyful and contented life in Christ than I otherwise would have lived had I not learned this lesson so early in my Christian walk. If you've never learned this lesson, if you've never learned what it means to trust God in the good times and in the difficult times, my prayer for you this morning is that God will teach you the same important lesson that He taught me of trusting Him in everything and in every circumstance. God is all-powerful. He is in control of all His creatures and all their actions. That means He is in control of you and your actions. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. The very head, the very hairs of your head are numbered as are the days of your life. God has pre-planned, ordained, predestinated, if you will, every detail of your life before you were even born into this world. You have a will, certainly you do. And you freely exercise your will every day. You're not a puppet. God's not up in heaven pulling your strings. You're making decisions. You've got a will. You're exercising that will. But your life and your decisions are in the hands of God. You know, if God were only all-powerful, we might be excused if we did not fully entrust ourselves to Him. But God is more than merely all-powerful. He is also good. He is all-wise. He is holy. 
He is faithful. And He is full of mercy and grace and love. And all His infinite and perfect power, His goodness, wisdom, holiness, faithfulness, all of these things are gathered together and they are mixed with His boundless love and mercy and grace. And all of these beautiful perfections are focused on you like a laser beam with the sole intention, the sole design of bringing His blessings to you. His divine power, Peter tells us, has been granted to us, or I'm sorry, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and for godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You, your circumstances, are in the hands of an Almighty God who loves you, who loves you so much that He sent His only beloved Son into this world to take on flesh, to suffer the weaknesses of this world and the sinfulness of this world, to go to the cross and die in your stead for your sins. God was so resolved to pour His blessings on you that He spared no expense. Even His eternal fellowship with His Son. Remember the Lord Jesus when He was on the cross? When He had become sin for us? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Remember what Jesus said as He was hanging on that cross? My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? That perfect fellowship with the Father was broken. The Father had turned His back on His Son and had struck His Son with all His holy wrath in our place. Why would He do that? Because He was so resolved to pour out His blessings on us. He was so determined that He might make us fit to be His own Dear children, everything that stood in the, the way of us having fellowship with the Father, He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to take away every barrier by going to the cross in our place. The wrath of God we deserved, He took. The penalty for sin that we should have paid, Christ paid. The death that was ours because of Adam's sin and our multitudes of sins. Christ reversed by rising gloriously from the dead and giving us His life. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things. God's determined to bless you. You can count on it. God loves you and He is working all things together for your good if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ.
But it doesn't always seem like that, does it? Sometimes the sun is shining, the birds are singing, everything's all right with the world. There's food on the table, money in the bank. Work's not only going well, but it is enjoyable. Life is good. But then there are those times when life's not so good. Some days the sun is not shining, the birds are not singing, and nothing seems right with the world. But even these days that we are... um, Even these days that are difficult, we are living in the hands of God who loves us. God is our... God has made the day of prosperity, and we love those days of prosperity. He has also made the days of adversity. Look at verse 14 in chapter 7. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one, the day of prosperity, as well as the other, the day of adversity, so that man may not find out anything that will be after Him. God in His infinite and bottomless love for us acts as a master gardener for our good. He sends a wide range of blessing and trial into our life to cultivate our growth in Christ. Sometimes He refreshes us with water and with fertilizing nutrients. Other times, He prunes the dead and unproductive areas of our life. He sends prosperity and He sends adversity. God is a good shepherd. He knows what we need. He knows exactly what each one of us needs. He tailors His shepherding care for us according to our need. He sends a whole range of trials into our lives. I cannot tell you why one Christian receives more adversity than another Christian. I can't explain why one Christian experiences more prosperity than another. All I can say is that God is good all the time, and He is good in everything that He does. He can be trusted. To some, God sends trials of prosperity, good health, and happiness. To others, God sends trials of adversity, sickness, even sometimes depression. And it might not be because of a particular sin in our life. It might not be because of particular uh, disobedience in our life that He sends the trials of adversity. It might not be because of our obedience that He sends prosperity. Regardless of the trials of prosperity or adversity, all of these trials are good. Did you notice that I'm calling these trials not only trials of adversity, but also trials of prosperity? He sends these trials to make us more like Jesus Christ. You know, if God gave me a choice of which trials to, to have in my life, I would, I would pick the trials of prosperity. God, I don't want the trials of adversity. If you're going to give me a trial of adversity, make it short and quick. 
But God says that the trials of adversity are to be more desired. James 1, verses 9 and 10 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. What James is doing here is he's setting up an, uh, an illustration using the metaphor of a, uh, a very poor Christian and a rich non-Christian. Just to, to, to set the table for what he's saying here. And he wants us to ask, what would we prefer to be? A poor Christian or a rich non-Christian? And he, just to make the point clear, he says that rich man, he's gonna, he's gonna pass away like a wild, like a, like a flower of grass. Uh, he's gonna be humbled. Whereas this lowly brother in Christ is gonna be exalted. God sends trials of prosperity to test your dependence upon God. When things are going well and the sun is shining, the birds are singing, you're happy. Well, that's when it's really easy to forget about God. That's when it's easy to trust in our wealth, trust in our circumstances. Things are going well. I want things to keep going well. I'm going to keep working at my circumstances. I'm going to keep working after that wealth. And God gets pushed back in our priorities. Remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus. What good thing must I do to be your follower? Jesus said, sell all your possessions and follow me. He loved his possessions, however, more than he was willing to love Christ. Christ said, you can't be my disciple. So there are these trials of prosperity. And when things are going well, it's easy to forget God. But then there are trials of adversity. And they put us in a position where we deeply feel our need for God. In this connection, I love Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Solomon in our passage wants us to trust in our sovereign God regardless of our life situation. Whether we are rich, whether we are poor, or whether we're somewhere in between. He wants us to trust God for our future situations that we haven't even experienced yet. So He wants you to trust Him in the present, also in the future. Look at verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything... I'm sorry, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Not verse 15, the second half of verse 14. It says, Consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The future that Solomon is mentioning here could refer to tomorrow. You don't know what's happening tomorrow. It could be that uh, the day of your death that he's referring to, you don't know when you're going to die. 
Or it could be the future of your family and loved ones after you die. And I think for me, that's where I would struggle most. I can trust God for tomorrow. I can trust God for the day of my my death. I know I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. But God, will you take care of my family after I'm gone? And so let me read that again since I uh, flubbed it so badly the first two times. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Regardless of whether he's talking about tomorrow, the day of your death, or after you die and uh, what will become of your family, God says, trust him for all of it. How can you trust? How can you um, how can you control tomorrow? How can you control the day of your death? How can you control your your family circumstances after you're gone? It's all in God's hands. And remember, He loves you. I'll admit, trusting God is difficult to do for sinners like us. We like to be in control. We like to have a sense of that things are in our hands. And so we'll snatch things out of God's hands to try and keep them in our control. This leads to our bad habit of trying to put God in a box of our own making. If we know how God's supposed to act, then we can manipulate Him into doing what we want Him to do, so we think. For instance, we like to think that if we are obedient enough, then God will make sure that we're happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. The desire for control and happiness leads us to devise immature theology that says good Christians shouldn't suffer pain or disappointment. If you're suffering pain or disappointment, well, then something must be wrong in your life. We like to think, and that is an immature way of thinking. There are a lot of Christians that have suffered a lot more than I have, and they are much more mature, much more godly than I will ever be. Or we might say, God wants to make us happy. And so we choose happiness as our goal in life above everything else. Or, um, if we do what God says, then things will work out the way we the way they should work out. And those are examples of bad theology. But if that's how we think about God, then when things happen that we don't like, then we're going to easily become confused, maybe even embittered with God. And I detected a bit of that in me back in 1991 when I was in the town of Mumbai at 7 a.m. after having no sleep. God, I know you're in control. God, I don't like it. In other words, God, I don't think you have my best interest at heart. And so we can become confused, even embittered with God. Listen to verse 15. He says, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Sometimes 
God allows sweet, godly Christians to suffer unspeakable persecution. Sometimes God allows very devout Christians who have given generously to to the poor to suffer prolonged sickness and never recover. Sometimes God allows bad people to get rich on the backs of the poor and never to be brought to justice in this side of eternity. God is God. He has His good and His wise purposes. He is working them out every moment of every day. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Paul asks, in Romans chapter 11. But instead of trusting God, many insist that God can be manipulated. And this is what Solomon is saying in verse 16 when he talks about being overly righteous or in verse 17, being overly wicked. This idea in verse 16 is um, the idea of one being overly righteous is also known as being overly or or as being self-righteous. So verse 16, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Being overly righteous is basically being self-righteous. Many Christians think that God is bound to uh, to pay them back for their righteousness. I do this, God, you're bound to treat me well. God, I've given this much money on Sunday. You're bound to uh, bless me in these ways. And so it's, God, look what I've done. The problem is we can never measure up to God's standards of perfection. We can never make ourselves worthy of receiving blessing from Him. The Lord Jesus Christ, by His grace, is the only one that can make us worthy to receive His grace. And that is a free gift that we don't deserve and could never earn. So, since we can't measure up to God's standards of perfection, what we do is we set up for ourselves false standards um, of behavior that we can attain to. And so the Christian life comes about the length of your dress or the length of your hair or... Your Christian life comes down to things like abstinence from alcohol or reading your Bible daily or praying for a certain length of time each day. And if you don't do any of these things or if you're, you're messing up on these things, then God's love is withdrawn. Because remember, if you're setting these things up as if you do these things, God's going to bless you. When you don't do these things in your mind, maybe not in the fore of your mind, but somewhere down in your heart, you wonder if God has withdrawn His love for you. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not giving enough to the church. And when we are living... Uh, our Christian life like this, uh, depending on our self-righteousness, what we also do is typically throw out a strong dose of judgmentalism to make ourselves feel more righteous 
when we notice others failing to live up to the standards that we meet. For many, when they see this kind of hypocrisy, and it is hypocrisy, and it is always noticeable, you can put on airs, you can put on a mask, but people can see through it, even if they don't know what's happening. God can see through it very easily. And so when many see the hypocrisy of the self-righteous, what do they do? They go to the opposite extreme. I'm not going to try and live up to their hypocritical standards. I won't live by any standards. Many children raised in the church have reasoned thusly. My parents, they weren't as righteous as they should be. There were areas of hypocrisy. So I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm going to throw off any standards. And Solomon warns us about this kind of attitude in verse 17. He says, Do not be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? You know, I've, I've come to believe that this anything goes type of lifestyle is just as judgmental and just as self-righteous as the religiously self-righteous. So if we're not to be overly righteous, nor are we to be overly wicked, where's the balance? Are we to try and thread the needle between the two? No. <laughs> trying, to thread, trying to thread the needle, trying to live a balanced life leads to its own set of problems. Life doesn't need to be that complicated where you're balancing things out. you got the, the, the plate spinning. That's not a way to live. Solomon gives us the key to living a happy life in verse 18. And this is our last verse. He says, It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Let me paraphrase this to make it clear what he's saying. Uh, so here's my paraphrase. It is good that you should take hold of this advice. And from this advice, withhold not your hand. Here is the advice. The one who fears God shall avoid both extremes of being overly righteous and overly wicked. How do you, over, how do you live? Fear the Lord. The God you are called to fear loves you. The God you are called to fear sent His own beloved Son to the cross for you. The God you are called to fear has adopted you as His own dear child. The God you are called to fear has forgiven you of all your sins in Jesus Christ. The God you are called to fear is the one you can trust to work all things out for your good according to His goodness and His wisdom. Fear Him because He loves you. And then enjoy the life He's given you. Enjoy it in the prosperity and trusting through the adversity. I learned this lesson in Uganda. I forget it often and have to relearn it. I have to be reminded of it daily. Your God loves you. Trust Him in all things. Let's pray.
Almighty God, we thank You for Your great love for us. Lord, we are um, foolish when we try to gather into our own hands our own circumstances and take control of things that are best left to You. Lord, help us to fear You. I pray that if there are any here who have not learned the joy of fearing You who loves them, that You would draw them to Yourself today. Lord, for the poor soul who wonders if You love them, Lord, gently shepherd them into Your fold. Lord, we give ourselves into Your hands. You are the great gardener. Prune us where we need to be pruned. Water and fertilize us where we need to be fertilized because we want to grow more and more to be like our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please take your hymn books and turn to number 302. Let's stand together as we sing, Come, Christians, join to sing, number 302.